Amen. This evening, I invite you to join me in the Old Testament book of Psalms, Psalm 47. This evening, Psalm 47. There are notes that I prepared and presented for you there in the foyer as you came through the doors. Psalm 47, a message I've titled, Our God Reigns. Many psalms are personal expressions of an ancient author like David who referenced their own personal experiences before God. And many times those things resonate with us because our experiences are similar. We are afraid of threats against us and we are waiting on the Lord to answer us and we need to confess sin to the Lord and set our hope in the Lord like that ancient author. At the same time, in reading those personal expressions of an ancient author, we sometimes feel that we're on the outside looking in at their life experience. Other times when we read the Psalms, we, we find them to be the corporate expressions of an ancient nation. Of course, like Israel first and foremost, who references their own corporate experiences before God, and, and those things may also re- resonate with us, for our experiences may be similar. We live in a country that has enjoyed the sweet providence of God throughout its history. We live in a country that needs the Lord to preserve us from our enemies. Corporately, as a nation, we need to repent and turn to the Lord Yet at the same time, in reading those corporate expressions of an ancient nation like Israel, we sometimes feel like we're on the outside, looking in or back at their story. But then there are Psalms, like Psalm 47. Psalm 47 was born out of the ancient experience of both a person and a nation. It was their story, and yet it includes us and points us forward to when God will reign over all people and all nations. Bible scholars believe that Psalm 47, like Psalm 46, was authored by Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, the man, the person, when the nation of Israel corporately, or Judah specifically, the southern kingdom, was surviving the attack of King Sennacherib as recorded in in 2 Kings 18 and 19. And we're familiar with this, this account. Let me read for you of that event. The Bible says it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh, 2 Kings 19, verses 35 and 36. So while the experience was of an ancient person and an ancient nation, Psalm 47 then invites us as part of all peoples to participate in the victory parade uh, today because how Psalm 47 is addressed to all you peoples, you see it there in Psalm 47, verse number one. So I've written there at the top of your notes, Psalm 47 looks to a time when God will conquer every enemy and reign supreme forever. Our God reigns. Let me pause for prayer, and then we'll look at Psalm 47 together. God in heaven, we thank you for the comfort of the hymns that we sang this evening that we might find our our refuge in you, that we might hide ourselves in you, stay near to you, abide with you. 
God, I pray that you would make that our experience. May we be very mindful of your presence day and night. Lord, this evening as we study Psalm 47, we understand its background, but Lord, we also understand its prophetic message, declaring that you will someday rule and reign supreme over the nations, and we're grateful for that. I pray, God, that you would give us insight and understanding as we study the scripture now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let me read the psalm for us. It's brief, just nine verses. Psalm 47. Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to, to God with the voice of triumph. For the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. He will choose our inheritance for us, the excellence of Jacob, whom he loves. Selah. God has gone up with a, a shout the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with understanding. God reigns over the nations, God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have gathered together the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. Psalm 47 begins with number one in your notes, the command to praise. Number one, the command to praise, and there are three ways in which we are to praise the Lord here in this psalm. First, beginning in verse number one, oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. The first command to praise, letter A, is clap your hands. Now, in the Bible, the clapping of hands is used both negatively and positively. Negatively. In Job 27:23, Lamentations 2:15, Nahum 3 verse 19, positively the clapping of hands, Psalm 47:1 as is before us, as well Psalm 98 verse 8, Isaiah 55 verse 12 and other places. But here before us in Psalm 47 verse 1, the clapping of hands is clearly a positive point of praise to God. Okay then, Is the clapping of hands in verse number one describing the rhythmic clapping that keeps cadence of a song? It has been and is today very common around the world for people to clap their hands to keep the time and the rhythm of their singing. Perhaps first and foremost we think of of the African countries. We think of those in the islands but we might first think of the Jews. The Jews, the Hebrew people, part of their feasts and their festivals, very common for the Jews to clap their hands with their singing. I have been places, part of assembly meetings of of God's people, where they clap their hands through every song. So is the clapping of hands in verse number one, the rhythmic clapping that keeps the cadence of a song? Or is the clapping in Psalm 47, one, Describing the expression of approval. We normally clap our hands for one's performance. After a game or after a concert, we clap for one's achievement, like a a graduation ceremony or a wedding ceremony. Today, it's even increasingly common now, maybe the norm, to clap in churches, even during the preaching. Have you ever been part of a service or perhaps seen or or heard the clapping during one's preaching. Maybe you've heard that seen that heard or seen that done, but 
But most properly understood, I submit that the clapping in Psalm 47 is something directed toward the Lord, not toward men's service for the Lord. Did you catch that? The clapping here is something directed to the Lord, not something directed to men for their service for the Lord. Okay then, so what should we do in our services here at Fourth Baptist Church? I would like to propose that you would applaud when I make a good point in my sermons. Can we do that? That, that would be helpful to me. Thank you, thank you very much. So this is a, this is a difficult thing to control. It's kind of like a, a wet dog in the house. You see, once it's loose, there's not a lot you can do to stop it, right? And uh, what do we do with applause or clapping as part of our services? Let me depart from the scripture for a moment and uh, give us some practical instruction regarding clapping. And I'm sure you're eager to, to know what I'll say. I'm gonna go right down the middle of the road and I'm gonna split, split the congregation here and suggest a balanced response on the issue regarding clapping. First, don't be scandalized if spontaneous applause occurs. It's okay. For many people, clapping is an expression that is no different than saying amen when you're moved or laughing when a funny story or joke is told from the pulpit. You don't know this, but a number of years ago, we had two individuals leave Fourth Baptist Church because they were grieved at the occasions when the congregation would laugh corporately when a a joke or a funny story was told from the pulpit and they felt it was irreverent to laugh in the house of God. You know what I told them respectfully? I said, we're just being normal. I'm, I'm sorry about that, right? It's not an irreverent thing for us to to laugh on occasion, to laugh together. It's maybe good medicine. When we are laughing at appropriate things, we would never laugh over sin or hell or some of these matters, but they were scandalized by that. I would encourage us not to be scandalized with spontaneous applause. On the other hand, I do think there is wisdom in us remembering the context for the gathering of our services. When we gather together, it is not for the praise of the presenter, whether in song or in spoken word. Rather, our gathering together is to direct our attention and our affections to God through the song and through the spoken word that is presented. So therefore, we we can know that the presenter of the song, the presenter of the spoken word, is not expecting nor is asking for applause. Rather, their desire would be for us to engage with the message of what's being presented. They want our minds and our hearts to follow in worship or in prayer or in reading or in thinking about the truth. And so it's not necessary that we always applaud. The the context here in Psalm 47 is a celebration for what God has done in delivering Judah from its enemies. The clapping here in Psalm 47.1 was something directed to the Lord not directed to man's service for the Lord. What I wanna really highlight here for us in verse number one is that the clapping, the, the applause directed to the Lord is something for all you peoples. And this wasn't only for the ancients. 
This wasn't only for Israel. It's a command for us modern Gentiles as well. Spurgeon once said, if they cannot all speak the same language, the symbolic language of the hands they can use. Could it be that someday when we surround the throne of God from every tribe and tongue and nation and people, perhaps our expression will be applause as is described here in verse one. But it's not only the clapping of your hands, all you peoples, verse number one, shout to God with the voice of triumph. So letter B would be a shout to God. The command to praise is clap your hands, letter A. It's shout to God, letter B. And just like clapping, shouting can be, can be done either negatively or positively. Think positive, positively. You have shouted words of greeting or encouragement or victory at times. Also negatively, you may have shouted at the wet dog that was loose in the house at times, perhaps, I don't know. So I've heard that that might happen, right? So in in this case, the shouting is, is, is a positive. It's a shout of triumph. Imagine being part of the camp of Israel. The people gather in assembly to hear the prophet or to hear the king. The trumpets sound. A declaration is made. God has given us victory over the enemy. And the congregation erupts in applause and in shouts of victory. That's what's happening here. So we need to consider the use of shouting in our services. What should be the rules of decorum for the gathering of the Fourth Baptist Church during this hour? I don't think anyone would favor random outbursts. Now perhaps if someone said amen at a strategic point, that might be appreciated. If someone shouted hallelujah, we'd all be uncomfortable, right? At that point... If someone were heckling me during a sermon, what would you do? Would anybody intervene? Please tell me, somebody would intervene, right? At the outburst or the the shouts there. Once again, like the clapping, the shouting here is to the Lord. It's not for or against the presenter of song or spoken word, but it's a shout for the Lord. You say, okay, pastor, what do we do? We don't clap and we're not allowed to shout. What is there left for us to do? Well, let her see. Sing praises. Sing praises. And and at this point, I would point you to verse number six. Verse six, sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. And like the clapping and like the shouting, the singing is to God. (sighs) We're comfortable with this because this is our norm here in the upper Midwest among the Swedes and the Norwegians. We don't do clapping and we don't do shouting, but we can do singing and we do a lot of singing around here and that's right and that's good and it's intentional. If we sing an average of five songs every time we assemble and if we assemble twice a week for 52 weeks a year, let's do the math on this, five times two times 52, we will sing more than 250 songs in the course uh, of a year. We have hundreds of songs in our repertoire, both bound in a, in a hymnal, but as well as new, new music that's always being written. And of course, we don't always sing explicitly praise songs. We may sing psalms or hymns or spiritual songs that express biblical truth or thanksgiving or petition to the Lord. We sing to one another as a point of edification to to one another. 
and we sing praises. There may be appropriate times to to applaud. There may be appropriate times to interject with a shout. There is always appropriate time for singing of of praises, and and this, this is the command to praise in Psalm 47. But it really sets up the the second point from this psalm, and that's the reason for praise, what I'm calling number two, the cause for praise. The command to praise, number one. The the cause for praise, number two, and we've made it now to verse two. Therefore, I'm, I'm sorry, verse number two. For the Lord most high is awesome. Letter A, he is awesome. He is awesome. How do you qualify something as awesome? Who's to say if someone or something is, is awesome or not? Well, let me ask you. How do you know if something is hot? How do you know if something is wet? How do you know when something is sweet or bright or hard? You say, well, you just know. How do you know when something or someone is awesome? It is self-evident. When you see it, you know it. Of course, our human sensibilities are easily impressed. So we might declare many things to be awesome as long as as it's bigger and better than, than we are, we might say it's awesome. For example, watching the blue angels fly. That is awesome. Hearing the roar of the jet engines. That is awesome. How about being a passenger on one of those jets? That would be awesome. But how much more awesome would be seeing Almighty God? How much more awesome would be hearing the thunder of the voice of Almighty God? How much more awesome would be being held as a passenger, as it were, in the hand of Almighty God? That is awesome. And on the scale of awesomeness, no one or nothing is more awesome than God. And so for that reason, we always pursue a bigger and a better view of God to see his handiwork in creation and to hear his voice in scripture and to experience his presence when we walk in the spirit. It is then that we grow to appreciate how awesome our God is. His majesty and his sovereignty and his glory. That's awesome. So our cause for praise is because God is awesome. Now remember the occasion for this psalm. King Hezekiah, the nation of Judah, the ancient man and the ancient nation who have just been delivered miraculously from King Sennacherib of Assyria. When they wake in the morning and they're outside the camp are all of those corpses, 2 Kings 18 and 19. The cause for praise is because God is awesome. Secondly, letter B, he is the great king. He is the great king. Look at verse number two. For the Lord most high is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. Jump to verse seven. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. Verse eight, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. He is the great king. In just a couple short weeks, on Saturday, May 6th, mark it down, save the date, Saturday, May 6th, King Charles III will be crowned King of England at Westminster Abbey in London. 
Evidently, I understand that it will be a shorter and smaller event than Queen Elizabeth II's coronation in 1953 when her procession had 16,000 participants. (laughs) It took 45 minutes to pass a stationary point on the four-mile route. But King Charles' coronation service will include these things. And uh, let let me spoil the event for you. There will first be the recognition While standing beside the 700-year-old coronation chair, the monarch is presented to those gathered in the abbey by the Archbishop of Canterbury. The congregation shouts, God save the king, and trumpets will sound. Next, the oath. The sovereign swears to uphold the law in the Church of England. Third, the anointing. The king's ceremonial robe is removed and he sits in the coronation chair. A gold cloth is held over the chair to conceal the king from view. The Archbishop of Canterbury anoints the king's hands, breast, and head with holy oil made according to a secret recipe, but known to contain a word I can't pronounce, also orange flowers, roses, jasmine, and cinnamon. The oil created for Charles will not contain any ingredients derived from animals. That's good to know, right? That's important to us. All right, we do, we do this properly. Okay, following that is the investiture. The sovereign is presented with items including the royal orb, representing religious and moral authority, the scepter, representing power, and the sovereign's scepter, a rod of gold topped with a white enameled dove a symbol of justice and mercy. Finally, the archbishop places St. Edward's crown on the king's head. And then the enthronement and homage, the king leaves the coronation chair and moves to the throne. Peers kneel before the monarch to pay homage. Wow. That's pretty impressive. And the whole world will probably be watching But folks, that's just the king of England. Psalm 47 is telling us of the king of all the earth. Do we understand the difference? God reigns over the nations. And that makes him worthy of our praise, our cause for praise. He is awesome. He is the great king. Okay, what does he do? Let her see. He subdues the peoples. He subdues the peoples. Look at verse number three. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. Now, depending upon your Bible version, verse number three may read in the future tense, the King James and the New King James as I have it here, or it may read in the past tense, the ESV and the NIV, or if you have the New American Standard, it's in the present tense. So, What is it? Which is it? Has God done it or will God do it? The answer is yes. Bible translators have differed here in in the tenses because the Hebrew text is a little vague. I didn't have the time to consult with Dr. Beecham or or Dr. Mays here uh, before this evening to perhaps help me with this, but but we could understand the, the debate over the tenses in this way. What God has done in the past Subduing the the peoples, the nations. Think Joshua chapter six through 12, the conquest of the promised land. And what God has just done in the present, Sennacherib of Assyria, 
I referenced from 2 Kings 18 and 19. And what God has promised he will do in the future, our day and beyond, is to conquer the peoples, the nations. So let's look at those tenses first. Looking back historically before the writing of Psalm 47, think of, think of uh, Israel's conquest of the promised land in the book of Judges. The Bible gives us the names of seven different nations in the land of Canaan that were subdued by God for Israel. According to Deuteronomy chapter seven, verses one and two, they are the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the Perizzites. A great cross-reference to that Old Testament record is Paul's preaching in Acts 13 when he rehearsed Israel's history and he said this. He said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt and with an uplifted arm he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years he put up with their ways in the wilderness. That's a great line. He put up with them. God put up with Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotments. You see, God is the one who won the battle. He subdued the peoples, beginning with Joshua in the battle of Jericho, or what about in the times of Judges Gideon and the Midianites? Of course, the background is Psalm 47 with King Hezekiah and the the Assyrians led by Sennacherib. Read the Bible and you will discover that God subdued the enemies of Israel for them. That's looking back. God has done that. But if we look around currently at the time of the writing of Psalm 47, the Assyrian threat is neutralized. God stopped Sennacherib in his tracks and sent him back to Nineveh to remain there. And then, of course, third, looking forward eschatologically to the Messiah's conquest over the nations in Revelation 19. You know this passage well, but listen as I read it. John reports of his vision in Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. By the way, that's awesome. Revelation 19. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it, here it is, with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Folks, God will subdue the peoples, the nations of the earth. Verse number four, Psalm 47, verse four. He will choose our inheritance for us, the excellence of Jacob whom he loves. This is letter D. He chooses our inheritance. He chooses our inheritance. Now, once again, historically, this reminds us of the conquest of the promised land when God distributed to each tribe their portion of land as detailed in Joshua 13, verse 21. But eschatologically, if we can think forward to, to the, 
the end times. It reminds us of 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you. He has chosen our inheritance and again, if we were to turn to Revelation 21, Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ to inherit these things, which leads me to recognize then ultimately here a prophetic, eschatological focus in this psalm. And if you'll indulge me the reading again now of verses five through nine. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord, Yahweh, with the sound of a trumpet, sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises, for God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with understanding. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have gathered together the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. So the cause for praise, the command for praise, were to clap, to shout, and to sing. Why? The cause. Because he is awesome. He is the great king. He subdues the people. He chooses our inheritance, letter E. He is exalted, verse number nine tells us. Of course, that begs the question, when and where are the princes of the people gathered together to acknowledge his kingship and exalt him? Let me have you turn your notes over and follow as I read what one Bible commentator has written. This just does a great job of, of summarizing, I think, what I'm trying to say. The millennial age has arrived and the magnificent temple envisioned by Ezekiel has been built. Imagine this, yet future, The Lord has set up his throne in Jerusalem and reigns in purity and peace. The nations are summoned to Jerusalem. Each nation brings its shield. We read of the the shield there in verse number nine. They bring their shield or coat of arms. The shields are arrayed around the temple walls. The guarantee of peace is the king upon his throne. The Prince of Peace destroys all weapons forged by the hands of men, dissolves the war ministries of all the nations, um, and uh, demobilizes their armies, discharges all those who make a business of war. The millennial age has come. Spears are transformed into pruning hooks, swords into plowshares, tanks into tractors, soldiers into civilians. Men will learn war no more. As Jerusalem rested in peace at last, with the Assyrian army awaiting burial on the hills outside, Hezekiah, pen in hand, saw all this in dim and distant outline. The images blurred and unclear, but he saw it just the same. He thought of God. He is greatly exalted. A familiar favorite passage perhaps for for many, is what Paul wrote to the Philippians, Philippians 2. Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is sovereign, that he reigns supreme to the glory of God the Father. Folks, as we read of the experience of an ancient man, Hezekiah, or an ancient nation like Israel. And sometimes we feel like we read the Psalms and we're on the outside looking in, or we're on the outside looking back at their experience. It's helpful to read of their experience, but know that Psalm 47 includes us, all you peoples, and doesn't only look back, but looks forward to a time when God will conquer every enemy and reign supreme forever. That's worthy of applause. It's worthy of a shout. It's worthy of a song to praise him, for he is exalted. Let's pray. God in heaven, we bow our heads in humility and submission, recognizing that you reign You rule and reign supreme, ultimately on the throne of David in the the years to come. Lord, we eagerly wait for that day. We long for that day. We look forward to when you will rule and reign in perfect righteousness and you will set wrongs right. You will subdue all the nations and you will be exalted. Lord, in the meantime, I pray that we will live and walk Um, as if you were on the throne of our heart, that we would surrender to your lordship in every, every aspect of our lives. Lord, please receive our praise as we intend it, for you are our God who reigns. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.